0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Asia VC cast hosted by yours truly, Daniel Song at VC on Twitter. This week's special guest is Simon Wu from Cathay Innovation. Simon is a principal at Cathay Innovation based in San Francisco and is responsible for screening, evaluating and executing potential investments, as well as post-investment and monitoring. Prior to joining Cathay Innovation, Simon spent over three and a half years at VMware in a strategy and corporate development team, which was responsible for leading acquisitions, investments, and strategy. Also he previously was at UBS in the investment banking division as part of the technology, media, and telecommunications group. Another good fellow Berkeley grad of mine, so please join me in welcoming Simon Wu from Cathay Innovation. Hey, Simon, thank you for joining us today. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. So why don't we start by telling our listeners about yourself and how you came to join Cathay Innovation to become a venture capitalist?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Los Angeles, California. Uh, Started out early on at school, just already thinking about technology. Um, I was a double in engineering and business when I was at UC Berkeley. Surrounded by entrepreneurs, but realized very quickly then that I really enjoy the business and numbers aspect more. So coming out of school, I really wanted to kind of build a foundation understanding how businesses worked. So I started my career in technology investment banking at UBS. uh, Worked on a number of really interesting projects in M and A and equity, and really just got a sense of how uh, the business on the financial side and how the processes worked. uh, Knowing this, Uh, but really from there, really kind of pivoted me towards an really operational experience and understanding how companies scaled, so that you really can think about how, uh, not just what the numbers meant, um, but actually what are the decision processes that led to those numbers in the first place. And so I went to a very large and acquisitive company called VMware. Um, This is an enterprise software company with about 50 billion in market cap. Uh, They did a handful of transactions a year. So this was a really good, uh, I would say, uh, learning ground for me so that I'd be able to get a mix of kind of how people thought about uh, acquisitions, investments. Um, And so I was at the CorpDev team there. They had the mandate of doing acquisitions, partnerships and investments, as I mentioned. And over four years, I was there. I really learned about you know, large-scale deals, real revenue movers that uh, you know, companies see very strategic. So when you think about these recent large couple billion-dollar acquisitions, you know, what was the thought process that the management team or the GMs of these businesses were thinking about? So one I got to work on was a $1.5 billion acquisition of AirWatch, which is a mobile security company for VMware, uh, the biggest deal, at least at that time, in the history of the company. Then we looked at some technology tuck-ins. That a lot of startups think about. So when companies think about building or buying or doing acquihires, um, that was a really uh, interesting conversation that we had when we think about roadmap and strategy. So I was working. I was fortunate enough to kind of be part of the team of forming Pivotal, um, which is a software and services company that today recently went public earlier this year, uh, and it's run about six billion today. Um, we also invested off the balance sheet. So I also did some investments on behalf of VMware. Uh, projects such as like uh, a Puppet Labs, where we invested a, a very large amount to get $40 million to, to lead that round because we felt that it was very strategic to VMware, but not necessarily something we had to own internally ourselves. And so once uh, kind of that was a breeding ground for me to really understand, you know, I had the foundation on the numbers. Now I know kind of o- operationally how people and companies think at these scales, especially with working with smaller and larger companies that are coming through our, our pipeline, our doors to meet some of the leaders of our company. I was ready to take that to the next level and really help entrepreneurs think about scaling uh, the business to the next level. So recently, a few years ago, I met uh, Cafe Innovation through another venture capital partner. And I met the CEO, Dennis Berrier, who, who just uh, founded the, the firm and, and started fundraising a amount. Um, he was like, hey, uh, we're building a U.S. office. Welcome <laughs> to join and to help build a new platform. And the rest is history.
0: Awesome. And, you know, I came across your website after your, obviously your profile. And, you know, Cathay's background and history, I think it's very unique. Um, could you tell us our listeners who is not familiar with Cathay or what Cathay is and what your investment thesis is like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so Cathay Innovation, uh, has a vision to support entrepreneurs around the world to really build and scale their businesses. Uh, we really believe that innovators can come from anywhere. So for on that, um, the firm is really built around that concept of a, a global platform. Um, so we have a global mandate, and on the ground presences in, in North America, in San Francisco where I'm based at. Uh, we're uh, headquartered in Paris in Europe to cover the Europe uh, opportunity, and then in China, obviously with the amount of investment out there, we're a very strong presence in Shanghai and Beijing. And the name Cafe actually comes on the fact that we're connected to a larger uh, platform called Cafe Capital Private Equity, uh, which is, uh, as you know, uh, as the name mentions, it's a, it's really a global private equity platform. Uh, with over 2 billion assets, 6 offices, 70 investments, and 70 investment professionals. So as a startup uh, VC fund, we have a lot of presence and scale to leverage in order to really provide that uh, global expertise that some of the startups uh, that we're working with might want to uh, learn about. Um, in addition to that kind of global platform, we also created a network of corporates because of kind of given the stage of companies and we're focused at, uh, we really feel that uh, the corporations can really be able to add value, both on a a BD side, as even potential uh, as customers for some of the uh, technologies in which we're investing in. And so we have a number of uh, corporates invested in our fund. They're a small portion of our fund, but they range uh, a number of different industries um, from financial services to mobility, to energy, to retail. And so they collaborate with our portfolio companies and us to make sure that we are, uh, thinking about the uh, the right trends and right ideas. And we know the right folks at each of the companies who visit their factories. And this uh, this very fruitful kind of collaboration is uh, very helpful to some of the startups that don't get exposure to some of these big companies. Because sometimes um, as someone that's you know a 50-person team trying to navigate 6,000 people at some of these large companies, who's the right folks to speak to? And we can be a very helpful middleman for that. And we think we can create a lot. Value for uh, these entrepreneurs today uh, in doing that, and so today we're investing out of our first fund. Uh, it's three hundred fifty million, and we're writing checks between five to fifteen million in early growth companies. So we are really think about that as companies with great product, a couple customers, and a business model. Um, and I spend most of my time in, uh, in software and fintech. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we're very excited. We've made a number of investments of our first fund, uh, and we continue to uh, to look around the. The globe for the next uh, amazing entrepreneur.
0: Gotcha, and I want to take a deeper dive into the latest trends and market trends that you're seeing in the Silicon Valley. You know, how have you seen the fundraising landscapes in Silicon Valley change over the last few years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, and there's a couple of things um, that we're seeing today, um, as everyone's been seeing the headlines. I really think there's more capital available as an asset class of venture capital today, which is really driven up pricing. And, and, and this large amount of capital has really created for any given trend or category an uh, amazing amount of startups and competitors, really, to, to try to compete and, and uh, become a category defining company. So, now because of that, and so uh, there's so much data now available on, on companies, every good company is now really widely known and it becomes really a, an auction process. And people start preempting, and so which has really driven up pricing, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. So, that's one trend. I would say another one is what I've noticed is that the stage shift, because a lot of funds are getting bigger and bigger. Um, the early stage companies, the seed stage company is now really just a phase. There's a, something called pre-seed, there's seed, there's post-seed, and then there's Series A, Series A1. You get the idea. Um, it really looks like the, the bar for the next round just get higher and higher. And so because of that, companies um, and CEOs just need a little bit more money now to reach that, that, that ever elusive bar. It's because of that. There's all these intermediate phases of fundraising. Um, And then I think the last thing is that I think in U.S. VC funds, um, many of the top funds now today have uh, raised billions and billions of dollars. I'm sure you might have read in the news recently that Sequoia is having a multi-billion dollar fund too to to compete with SoftBank. And so I, I think the strategy now is really that they want to have multiple bites at investing in category-defining companies. So, you know, you might not meet them at the seed stage or the series A stage, but you really believe in them, so you might get to invest in the B or C. Um, so that allows um, entrepreneurs that, or, I would say, VC investors who really uh, meet these entrepreneurs, build a relationship over time and eventually build the conviction they need be able to invest in them so they need bigger funds in order to do that
0: yeah i would say uh, we're seeing the similar trends in asia as well where there are seed funds or that becomes you know larger and larger and they start investing in sort of series b and series c and obviously covering the whole investment cycle uh, under one firm so you mentioned a lot of things that have changed uh, within over the years um are there any things that remained relatively the same in the ecosystem
1: yeah um i think when we talk to entrepreneurs every day i think uh the the, the seed stage entrepreneurs are still focused on the same name brand funds uh, for the Series A. So those top five funds have still, no matter which order you want to put them through, just like if you want to say if MJ or, or Kobe or LeBron mm-hmm. is uh, <laughs> you know, on that top five, no matter how you stack right. them, there some will say they're somewhere in there. Um, and so access is still hard. It really depends on introductions to these top five funds. And raising money is still a process, no matter uh, whoever you talk to. It's still hard and entrepreneurs are still facing that. But I think the beautiful thing about that, even though some of these things haven't changed, is that the new funds that keep coming out to compete now um, are actually being true value ads and they're actually adding something different to really differentiate themselves to be in front of these entrepreneurs and get the chance to work with
0: them. Right. And every day you're meeting many founders. Um, What are the major drivers, in your opinion, for founders to successfully raise funding?
1: I think it boils down to really two things. Um, At the end of the day, you only really need one yes to get that funding, right? But what that yes came down to was probably Mm -hmm. two things in my mind. I would say one is the team. Uh, founders, uh, investors just love working with founders they enjoy working with. I think that's true for anything, and it's definitely true for investing. And then I think, too, um, and those that successfully raised a, a fundraising round was that they had an idea that resonated with that investor. Um, again, um, you can have the best brand name, but if you have the wrong partner at that fund, unless they're generalists, you might not get a yes because they just don't understand your idea. So nobody wants to commit to helping a company that's not in their focus area because The value they will provide is just uh, not the same and it's hard for them to get excited. But I I think at the end of the day, if you have amazing metrics or growth rates, I think it will still catch the eye of someone. I think everyone can recognize a good deal. It's just uh, who can go the extra mile upon right. to get that uh, founder to raise that funding.
0: And you mentioned about the incredible growth rate. What would be the timeline that you would expect uh, to see that you know uh, exponential growth? Would that be you know, six months or one year? Or is there no timeline as long as you see a certain month-to-month overgrowth that you would consider that as incredible growth rate?
1: I think it's, uh, sadly, I have to say it depends. Um, and it really depends on each stage, too, as well. Because if you think about each round of raising, and obviously we just talked about different phases of seed investing um, or Series A1s and A2s, is that when we talk to our ecosystem of upstream and downstream investors, since we're right in the middle uh, of the, uh, the investment rounds, is that um, each stage is very different. At the seed stage, the GP or the investor is really thinking about how can uh, what are the right metrics I need to graduate to Series A. And that bar changes every single day, um, just because of competition, what's happening in your specific space, um, and generally just the market uh, trends. Um, I think it's uh, when you're going for that Series A, you're really about telling that right story of how can you be a billion plus company, right? What is the right narrative for that? But when you think about Series B, uh, or even sometimes even Series C is how do you return 10x capital? Um, everyone, uh, power follows that power law. And then as you get to the growth round series D and beyond, it's really tell me a story that gets me to three X safely. Um, and obviously this is where sometimes structure, um, because you can name a valuation number, but there's sometimes, uh, it's really in the devils in the details and really how they get there can be, uh, then do
0: that. Right. And coming from the perspective of founders, um, as an advice to them, you know, what would you tell the founders entering the fundraising process based on your experience so far?
1: I think uh, I would say a couple things. The one, the first and foremost, is really raise what you need, maybe a little bit more. Don't really lock yourself into kind of this framework about what is the right valuation I want, and what is the, um, and then because I want uh, some VCs offering me fifty million instead of the twenty million I needed, um, but there's all this structure and preferences. Can I actually get that? Um, whenever you're raising capital, you really have to construct a round to think about position for the future, because it's not just most of the time, it's not this is the only round out raise. And so it really means raising enough money to put the company in a strong position so that in 18 months or, or 24 months, you're at a point in which you reach the operational financial milestones that maximizes the future probability of raising capital, even if you don't think you need it, because things can happen, uh, recessions can kick in, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And so besides re- valuation and structure, there's other things you kind of think of, what is the trade-offs that matter to you? Um, and when you think about a framework to break that down, it's really thinking about these deal components um, and source components. And so is the deal kind of, uh, you know, do you get the valuation you want? Do you get the, the right um, uh, structure in terms of liquidation preferences, um, things of that nature that's really important? And then um, on the source side is, are you getting working with a fund that's very reputable? Um, are you working with someone that you trust on the other side? Is that partner you want to work with? Do they have the right experience? Do you have the right chemistry? Do they even have the reserves to follow on when you know maybe uh, the next round you don't get a nice lead that you want, but your, your board steps up and help kind of provides you with that? These are very key, I would say, tactical things. That's so very important to optimize and think about the trade-offs. Uh, and valuation shouldn't be just the only thing.
0: Right, right. And how would you you know, advise founders you know, chasing a high valuation, like you mentioned earlier, that could potentially hurt them in the long run?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think as a first step um, in any fundraising process is really to, um, before even think about the right numbers, is really having an organized fundraising process um, that creates competition. And uh, drawing from my experience in, in both investment banking and kind of all the advisors that or uh, all the companies I've been advising, it's really get them all at the right time. If the investors are competing, the founders are most likely to be able to get the best set of terms and have the best set of alternatives to choose from. They have all the leverage in the negotiation because they're getting multiple term sheets right now. But the trade-off is that obviously the the CEOs uh, or the, uh, the management team will need a balanced time not running the business. And hopefully it's at a point in which the business can still proceed forward without the CEO him or her kind of being there day-to-day because they have so much time to work with these investors. Uh, afterwards, once you have that kind of uh, that competition, it's not just maximizing the valuation. A lot of the structure and kind of the terms they offer, maybe a company-friendly terms, everyone keeps saying about founder-friendly, what does that mean? Does that mean that you have more board seats? Do you have more voting power? Do you have uh, less preferences? Uh, is it double dipping? You know, these are all things um, you may be you maximize for the, the, the biggest valuation, but these are things that come and haunt you. And so these are things that can hurt you in the long run because of that. So it's especially in the formative stages, um, really having a high valuation hurdle can be restrictive um, or having a problematic deal structure uh, because after your series uh, A, you have these terms, your series B and series C um, continue along. And they'll always start with the same position of, well, I'll just go off the terms of what you had in your last round. And we can make some decisions around that. It's really hard to steer future investors away from the terms that you gave on your last investors, because they'll be like, why can't we have the same thing? And so obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about these are things if things go south, right? If if you are doing well and the company is doing well, everyone has a, a great time and we're off to the races. But these are things of obviously you can't predict when if you don't, maybe you just don't hit the, the same course that you needed. And so these are things that investors have to protect themselves, but can really damage the CEO psyche. So it's important to have that uh, thought about. So really getting the right valuation, the right set of terms, right? Capital provider is really kind of the, the trifecta to make sure you don't get hurt in the long run.
0: Gotcha. And as an investor, you know, how do you view the importance of valuation on in this investment decision-making process? Yeah,
1: uh, I, I tell my uh, the founders I work with all the time is building a company is not a marathon. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And so it, it takes time and you really have to have growth goals. I think everyone wants to be able to look at the milestones and assess your progress and be able to reevaluate valuation. Valuation is really a point in time for uh, someone to just say uh, how much you are worth. But it really doesn't mean anything until you get to the finish line, wherever uh, that uh, entrepreneur sees that's the case. So setting the goals is really an art. Sometimes if you set it too high and you overpromise, you might miss them. You set them too low, it might not make a lot of sense because the next round is the, the investors will be like, so what? You know, Your competitor does you know, 2x more than what you are doing, right? And so it, it really is a, a give and take between investors and your board right now that you're working with to make sure you have the right north star uh, that the company is aiming for and why they want to aim for those goals. But I think uh, obviously um, seeing kind of the environment today, I would err on the side of caution. Um, Investors are much more comfortable investing in later rounds once you kind of really have surpassed your goals. So doing what you say is, I I think, the the best advice I can give no matter how early or late Asian company because no one wants to be surprised and you can see this in the public markets today when they swing, um, you know, plus or minus certain percentages because of uh, of that. And so uh, the the loss of momentum is really the biggest red flag. And so obviously companies can recover. You take a little bit of time, you slow down your burn, and you kind of reset yourself a little bit. But at the end of the day. Um, you can do double or triple digit growth. Um, investors will all be happy. It's really about seeing a steady trajectory of progress that everyone can track towards. And I think that's uh, very important. Right, and
0: as a founder, valuation is such a tricky topic all the time because who doesn't want to get valued higher than the rest of the you know competitors or teams, right? So as a founder, when is the right time to optimize for valuation and when is it not, in, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, um, I would say... You know, The first question I asked the entrepreneur when they said, uh, "You know, I, I want to get the, the highest number possible is, do you think you can get away with the run round of funding? Is this the last round you'll get and then you can control your destiny? That means you'll be profitable and you'll never to you know, raise again? Then I would say, if you can do that, by all means. But uh, more often than not, I think companies today will need an additional round of funding because something comes up, maybe there's a new growth target, the IPO markets aren't open if you're that late stage. And so Um, because of that, your valuation will get reassessed every single time. So as I mentioned earlier, really setting yourself up for success and thinking careful consideration about how much dilution you want to impact your stake at the company is the way you do it. And so you can model out and think through those math because... Uh, In the early stage investors in your seed, series A, series B, there's oftentimes expectations about how much ownership they need for these funds. And so uh, for some of the early stage fund, it's up to even 20 to 30%. And then as you get later on, because your valuation increases, hopefully that you can sell less and less of the company. But I think uh, most investors will often want, you know, at least a single digit percentage at the, even at the later rounds. Um. You know, withstanding your pre IPO rounds might be a little harder because you're such a big company at that point. But so if I had to give an entrepreneur advice tomorrow on when to optimize valuation, it's if you can prioritize customer success and every customer is super happy and you guys are doing super well, the valuation will come and then that will be demonstrated through the value you provide to your companies. So um, that's uh, the long way of saying uh, when to, to ask for valuation.
0: Right. No, that was really great. I think that was super insightful. And a lot of our listeners who are also founders, uh, I think it's a great way for uh, you to share your insights and see how they can also approach uh, when it comes for them to raise their next round and the future rounds. So what's the most deal you invested in? And um, could you tell our listeners why you invested in that company? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So we invested in a, a mobile bank called Chime. Um, we led their 18 million series B last year, and we continue to support them in their most recent 70 million series C round, uh, led by Menlo Ventures, uh, uh a while back. Uh, so what Chime is, is that they're a leader in the, uh, U.S. challenger banking sector. And I think, uh, there's been a lot of noise in this space, especially in Europe. Um, a number of new banks out there that've raised, uh, many, many millions of dollars, um, here in the U.S. Um, the problem a little bit different is that uh, today, uh, Americans uh, typically pay a couple hundred million in just overdraft fees because people are living paycheck to paycheck. And so uh, Chime's goal is to really help members lead financial lives. And unlike tra- traditional banks, they're well loved. They have high NPS scores and they're really becoming a technology company that's creating America's Next blue chip consumer financial brand. And so we're really excited to support, uh, Chris and Ryan, the, the co-founders of the company in their next, in their mission in building that uh, large financial services firm in which people today uh, that use them don't have to pay any fees. And they're able to monetize on the back end through, uh, their partners and be able to offer a great banking product, um, that can grow with, uh, this new generation with them over
0: time. That's great, and that leads me to my last question: uh, What to expect from you and Cathay Innovation this year? Yeah, uh,
1: big things are happening. Uh, I've been here for a couple years now, and, and we're, we have a couple more uh, exciting investments to be announced this year. Uh, some our team is uh, rapidly growing as well too, um, and so our platform generally overall is growing as we add a couple more ecosystem partners to our fund. So I think there'll be a couple uh, big announcements this year. Um, so, please stay tuned and uh, we can talk more about it then.
0: Great. Thank you, Simon. Always good to reconnect with Cal uh, Fellow. And I think you, you tackle one of the trickiest uh, topic in venture capital, which is how founders should approach valuation. And I think you provided great insights from perspectives of both as venture capitalists and founders. Uh, thank you so much again for, for taking your time. I'm really excited for what's coming in ahead of you and Cathay Innovation this year. Please keep us updated. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It was so much fun, Daniel. Appreciate your time.